This is the Magellan Journal, a podcast series here to help you navigate through EU opportunities. We remove the noise around current EU issues on different topics, such as transport and environment, each time through the perspective of a different expert. In this podcast, we speak to Silvana Prekup, a cybersecurity professional from the private sector in Brussels. Silvana explains us how data privacy affects our day-to-day lives and shares the story of her career change journey from journalism to the challenging field of cybersecurity and coding. Good morning, Silvana, and thank you for joining us in this podcast. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got into the topic of cybersecurity? Hi, Andrea. Thanks for having me. I am Silvana Prekup. I am Romanian and I have been in Brussels for the past 10 years, working in cybersecurity for the past four. And the way I started my journey in cyber is when I used to work on the digital transformation of the European Commission as an information architect. And that's where I sort of started by, by doing a bit of a risk management for the, for the content management system we used at the time. After that, I moved to working in, in a cyber defense team. So that's quite uh, technical in terms of uh, security. And that was for BNP Paribas Fortis. And after that, I worked for Deloitte, where I got a chance to work as a consultant in cybersecurity, doing a diversity of security roles, learning a lot, and also getting a chance to focus on what I'm currently doing, which is cybersecurity governance. Great. And you mentioned that you've been in Brussels for four years, so you're probably, even though you have maybe more experience in the private sector, you probably know a lot uh, also about cybersecurity in the EU. We keep hearing about cybersecurity so much in the last years. Can you tell us a bit more what is EU strategy for cybersecurity at this very moment? Well, first of all, it's it's amazing actually that we have a strategy. I think because it's uh, it can be a challenge to have a strategy for uh, for multiple countries and, and in Europe, uh, cybersecurity is a complex domain, and having a strategy is is an amazing achievement. So. First and foremost. Second of all, the focus is on cooperation. So then that's what the EU is trying to achieve in this space to, to, to focus on cooperation with partners within Europe, but also from around the world. And that's that's a great endeavor to pretty much try to to protect the ever-increasing connectivity of services and, uh, and products. And in terms of the actual uh, structure of the strategy and sort of what the strategy uh, is about, they're calling it the, the the four cyber communities. So they're trying to connect the, the internal market with law enforcement, uh, diplomacy, and defense. So uh, again, the focus being on cooperation at European level. The goal is to actually be able to respond collectively when cyber attacks happen. And and yeah, just one thing in cybersecurity is that you you will you will definitely have a lot more chances in recovering some from a cyber attack when you when you respond as a group as a team rather than individually. So the, the goal is to advance a, a global and open cyberspace. Now we saw GDPR in 2018, and which was the toughest privacy and security law in the world passed by the European Union. With this, Europe signaled its firm stance on data privacy and security at a time when more people are trusting their personal data with cloud services and breaches are a daily occurrence. As an expert in cybersecurity, would you say Europe is on a good track or we are lagging behind the US or the rest of the world, for example, when it comes to cybersecurity strategies? 
From a data privacy point of view, I think EU is leading the way actually globally because this is quite a clear policy saying that, okay, users and citizens need to have a, an opinion in how their data is being used. So this is definitely something that created a global wave, in my opinion, from the point of view of shifting power to the user also in terms of how your data is, is being used by companies who in the private sector who, who sell this, right? So this is their business model. They will always collect data in order to sell products, meaning you as a user and as a customer who, who buys those products needs to have a, a say in this. And that's my my personal understanding as a citizen of the of the GDPR. Okay, and when you say that the power has shifted to the user, can you give an example of, of what do you mean by this? Because we still hear a lot of complaints from people saying that oh, their data is being used and they their phones are listening to them and they have these targeted ads nonstop. So how has the power shifted to the user? Well, it's by asking the user, right? Just like at the beginning of this podcast, you asked me if I'm I'm okay with this being recorded. And I said, yes, probably a few years ago, this was not the case. But now, because first of all, we're more aware of the fact that our data is being used, collected, stored and reused and, and so on. This is something that became part of the conversation. And I think that's the first step towards getting a bit more aware and using your opt-in power. So just like with Facebook, for example, you can you have privacy uh, settings, which you can adjust uh, in terms of who sees what, how much you share, if you want to share, uh, similar to WhatsApp, whether you want to have your data stored, I think, forever or only for a month or only for a year. So, so you have all these different... Uh, options now to to control your data if you want to. So you were mentioning Facebook and WhatsApp, and these are, let's say, a bit more practical examples. And recently mm-hmm. there was a lot of noise and media attention towards the Facebook, WhatsApp encrypted messages issue. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of articles online why you should change the signal. And I also personally saw many of my contacts on Signal, but I still keep using WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. Can you maybe tell us what actually happened there and what does this actually mean in our day-to-day lives when it comes to privacy? Yeah, that's a really good example, actually, because we all use Facebook, we all use WhatsApp. I mean, okay, not all, but like the majority of people use either or or both. And so what actually happened there is that Facebook pretty much gave users an ultimatum saying that if you want to continue using WhatsApp, please be advised that we will combine all of the WhatsApp data that we have on our users. So data, contacts, images, voice notes, everything that you have in WhatsApp is data. Together with the data from Facebook, which is everything that you share on Facebook, and and even the other two companies that they uh, own, I think Instagram is is one company that they own, but Facebook Messenger is another type of app where, where you have a different type of data that they, they collect on you. What is the difference actually between the regular app and the, and the Messenger in terms of data just, being collected? Uh, normally, so when you use a, a web application like Facebook in your browser, That's one application. And then when you use Facebook Messenger on your phone, that's a different application. So these are two different, just different services, right? They're pretty much different services where where Facebook collects uh, everything and reuses it to improve the app. And normally this data is managed separately. So this means it's organized, stored, and collected separately. When they merge 
data from Facebook, with data from WhatsApp, with data from Instagram, they usually merge it for the purpose of further profiling users in order to sell services because that's what they run on. So data is their business model. They use data to mm -hmm. sell it to advertisers in order to have targeted ads and, and so on. By combining all this data, they have more targeted information. Uh, on users and and it's basically in their benefit from my point of view again from a security point of view as a user you don't really get much back other than more targeted ads in my opinion <clears throat> so again as a user of facebook and as a former user of whatsapp i think i should have the choice whether this is something that i want to share or not you know whether i, I trust facebook to combine all my data in a profile that is more detailed than any organization has about me, actually, right? So <laughs> the local government or my national government does not have the level of detail in terms of what Facebook has on individuals. So I would at least like to have a say in how this data is used because this is a profit-driven company. They will always use this data to, to drive their profits up. They're not necessarily using this data to support my privacy right if i am someone who wants privacy so that's that's a bit the the conflict there mm -hmm. and with whatsapp what happened is that they, yeah they gave you this ultimatum so that was a bit the mm -hmm. the, um, the policy that they put in place they said okay if you continue using whatsapp you pretty much agree to have all this data combined and i i, I wasn't happy with that uh, yeah that's happened for years also you know and even with whatsapp is actually happened since 2016 it's just something that they're openly saying now just because the climate mm -hmm. Again, GDPR and sort of the conversations around privacy we're having these years were not a concern in, in the past. You see, so, so a way to go about it, in my opinion, would be to have a question around it rather than give an ultimatum. So as a user, that's what I would prefer. And that's what I'm hoping that they will take as feedback because since they put this policy out, there was a massive migration to Signal. So you already mentioned Signal as a mobile app that provides encryption actual encryption right because my personal opinion and my experience is that signal is secure and whatsapp is insecure actually they they claim to have encryption end to end but in reality there is ways to get uh, access to that data and it's not secure actually whereas signal is but so encrypted mm -hmm. means secure what is an encrypted message a, a private secret message between two or more parties so Pretty much like if someone gets access to that information, they cannot read or understand what you have exchanged. It's actually private. So if you choose to share something personal, very private, or if you choose to share uh, financial details, or if you choose to share any other personal sensitive data across uh, WhatsApp, I think you should know that that it can be accessed. Yeah. And uh, of course, not by anyone. So there's, you know, there's people with the experience and sort of, you know, it cannot just be easily accessed by, by anyone. It is protected on some level, but it's not encrypted. Okay. And if you go even further with these applications that we are using and personal use of technology, there's also Google Home, there's Alexa. Mm -hmm. What is actually happening there when it comes to data privacy? Sometimes, I mean, you must have had the experience when um, you had a phone close to you when you were talking mm -hmm. with friends over dinner and then you were targeted with ads on some words yeah. that you mentioned that, that evening or the day after, mm -hmm. which I find really, mm -hmm. really creepy. Yes, it is creepy, isn't it? It is because they have access to your microphone and your camera. So, you know, that's also a way of collecting data and then targeting you immediately after, you know, that's again, mm -hmm. a very creepy example of how I would like to choose 
as a as a user of Facebook whether I want that or not. You know, I don't want that to happen by default for me because I'm so happy with the targeted ads, which actually I'm not. So because <laughs> many times they're wrong, actually. So so how who is actually listening to you through the microphone in the phone? Who gets this data? How is this possible? First of all, some of the social media apps that we use have access to your microphone and your camera. So for some of them we use for that. We use them for video calls and use them for calls. And many of us don't necessarily think twice before giving it access to our camera and microphone. So then what happens is that this is also used to collect uh, data. It's used to the example with Instagram that you gave earlier in terms of using it and then getting an ad the day after. What happens is that the the apps can run in the background, which is what happens even when you think your phone is uh, turned off and your app is not active. And it continues to collect data about the usage of your phone. And that's how you have behavioral surplus, it's called. So they're collecting your behavior in terms of your shares, how you scroll things, the people you talk to. So your direct engagement with the app, but there's also your indirect engagement that is also collected as behavior. And actually, you know, when you sort of sign up for these apps, you give consent for that in the fine print and mm-hmm. in those you know, long consent forms that nobody actually reads. And that's pretty much uh, how this information is, is being used for years and years now. Okay. And is, is there a way we can fix this? Are there any regulations on this? Or is this something that we actually as users accept to do when we agree to terms and conditions that we never read? Well, we accept, right? For the sake of usability, there's a lot of things and convenience. We, we like it. We're all on social media and especially now like with the pandemic, it's been more and more used by all of us to, to connect. And so from, from that point of view, I think it's okay. It's the world we live in. I mean, I'm not extreme in my opinions when it comes to this. I'm just advocating for a bit more, just a bit more power of decision-making for users. So there's definitely things uh, we can do in terms of, you know, like you check your settings and uh, you decide whether you want to keep that data for a long time or not, whether you want uh, to give Facebook access to certain things. So that's one thing that is under your control. And then from a regulatory point of view, yeah, we already talked about GDPR. I think that's changing the context a little bit. And and that's for, you know, the organizations that are using it to sort of put it in place. When we use these applications on our phone, we do not agree to to any GDPR. But does this, what we just talked about, about these ads appearing on, on your phone, on, on your social media, mm-hmm. also related to GDPR? Well, yeah, because the companies that have headquarters in Europe have to be GDPR compliant. So this means these companies have to pretty much show the regulator, so the commission and and sort of like their local data privacy commission, how they protect your data, how uh, they process your data, how they collect it. So... If you and I are users of Facebook, the European headquarters of Facebook would have to go through a GDPR compliance process. Mm -hmm. And so if your data is protected in Europe, let's say, by Facebook in terms of how they process it and manage it and use it or reuse it, your data is not protected the same way in America. It's different. So in the States, this is a completely, you know, if you use Facebook in the States, it's different. If you use Facebook in China, again, it's super Mm -hmm. different. 
it's it's uh, jurisdictions are regional, right? They're local, they're national, they're regional. I don't know if that answers your questions actually. It does, and then maybe another question will be: Are we doing enough in terms of regulations in the EU, or more can be done? Because of course we have the GDPR since a few years, since 2018. Yeah. Uh, but can more be done, in in your opinion? In my opinion, I think there could be a lot more done for implementation because, okay, we have policies and we have regulations, uh, meaning we have a plan, a strategy, but in terms of implementation, we're lagging behind. So, so in terms of how companies actually follow the GDPR compliance process, in terms of how our data is protected in, in, in different servers, so in different in different data storages of organizations that's still to be improved. Okay. So my last question, I would like to ask you a little bit more um, about cybersecurity as a sector and how you, how you got into coding and how is it actually, is it easy or is it difficult for girls and for women uh, to be in this, in this sector and how can we change that? Yeah, from a gender balance point of view, we could definitely do more in IT altogether, I think, and in technology and cybersecurity, definitely. My experience has been that, uh, indeed, so I don't have a technical background. I did uh, a master's in in European communication studies, new media and society. And then previously to that, I did a, a bachelor's in journalism and mass communication and EU studies. So far from engineering, far from computer science. However, just like with everything, I believe everything can be can be taught and learned. And technology is no different. Coding is no different. Cybersecurity is no different. So if you're if you're committed to to learning and and growing as a professional in this domain, there's a lot of resources out there, and there's a lot of people willing to share the knowledge. Uh, the way I got into cybersecurity is through a career change program. So it's called Cyber Wayfinder, and it's a program for women only. That's how they started back in 2016. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what this actually means is that I took classes, cybersecurity classes, three days uh, a week, starting in uh, 2017, and then started in a job directly. So the idea is that you sort of get started before you're ready. So that's been my experience. However, in practice... I have been in teams where I was the first woman in the history of the team for the past, I don't know, 20, 30 years since the team was functioning. So, so that also gives you a, an idea of the level of uh, gender balance in, in some of the security teams. But that being said, I see a lot of efforts from senior security professionals understanding the need for diversity. So not just gender, but also background diversity, because everyone has a different viewpoint and the best way to solve problems, it's, which is what we're trying to do in cyber in general, is by, by having a diversity of opinion at the decision-making table. So, so I'm hopeful for that, to be honest with you. I'm hopeful and I was given a chance myself. I see how others are open to giving chances. I think we're on the right track for that. At least in Brussels, that's, that's been my experience. Thank you so much, Silana, for this interesting conversation and for your story and how you got into, into cybersecurity. So thank you again, and I wish you a lovely weekend. Thank you. I was glad being on this podcast. Thanks. If you like this podcast and want to know more about Magellan, check out our website at www.magellan-association.org.